I'm sorry, sister, um, we weren't able to save her, so she just passed, you know, a little while ago. And the nun burst into tears, so I then had to counsel the nun. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. They were building positions in there if for a fight. If anyone to us, by the time anyone got to us, I think it was chaos. the weather was so bad, there would be nobody to boots full of blood. And the next thing I hear was alarms screaming. Very, very the soldiers didn't want to go into the ambushes, so they'd send the kids in first. So he was sent in first into an ambush and he got shot in the stomach. It was very hard for me, very hard for my family. And the plane burst. Proud of the crew, proud of what I've achieved and what I'm doing. The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. Air Vice Marshal Tracy Smart is Commander Joint Health and Surgeon General of the Australian Defence Force. She spoke with Thomas Kay about her career in the Air Force, her peacekeeping deployments and time in the Middle East. I'm Thomas Kay and I'm joined by Air Vice Marshal Tracy Smart AM. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Tracy. It's a pleasure. So let's start from the beginning. Can you tell us about your upbringing? Yes, I was born in um, South Australia in, uh, and grew up in a small country town called Kangarilla. A lot of my overseas friends don't believe that exists, but it is on the map. Um, and I grew up on a farm. We had mostly um, sheep and some cattle and also grapes was a big part of our uh, farm as well. So we grew, uh, grew grapes for the local fantastic Southern Vales wine industry. Did you have any family ties to the military? My father was a Nasho, as they said, so he was um, part of the National Service back in the 50s. He didn't actually go overseas on to any wars, but he served a couple of years in the uh, army. But going back further than that, my uncle, um, who I never met, um, he was a pilot in World War II. He was a uh, Wellington pilot, so he was um, undertaking operations um, over bombing, bombing Italy and then was shot down and he's uh, buried in, in a place called Klagenfurt in Austria. So although I never met him, he was my mother's older brother who never came home from war. And in my grandmother's place, there was always a portrait of him on the wall. She never mentioned him. We couldn't talk about him. It was very sad, but he was always there as a presence, I guess, in my life. So I guess I did think a little bit about Navy in terms of service, but I think there was always that, that pull towards Air Force because of of that little bit of family history. And we have to know what came first, your interest in medicine or the military? Uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting actually, because I do remember a conversation I had with a school counsellor back in high school about what I might want to do. And that's where the Navy thing came up actually, and because I've always loved the sea. At the time, I was discouraged from joining the military by that individual because the opportunities for women weren't that great. And in Navy in particular, you didn't go to sea as a woman back then. And we're talking sort of early 80s, last century. And I thought, well, why would you join the Navy and not go to sea? So I was also looking at medicine. And so I went into medicine. And then when I was in fourth year medicine, some colleagues of mine uh, on my course and in the year above me said they'd just joined the Air Force on an undergraduate scholarship. And so I looked into it. And here I am 30 something years later, uh, still here. How was it taking it to the dinner table that you had signed up and joined the Defence Force? 
Um, I don't really remember the moment, actually. So I, I think um, I've never felt anything but pride. There was never any objection to me joining uh, the service. I think my dad's a very practical man, a farmer, and he said, oh, good, she's going to get a bit of money um, while she's, she's um, studying, so get, get her off my books a little bit. Um, but, but uh, yeah, they're always very encouraging. Um, so, yeah, no real sort of major moment of uh, drama or, or anything like that. When you um, signed up, had you still had another year to go in your medical training before you joined? So I had two years to go. I sort of started exploring it in fourth-year medicine, and back in those days we did six-year medical degrees at Flinders University where I was training. So I joined up at the start of my fifth year, so I did my fifth and sixth year under sponsorship. Then I did my intern year, and in, in those days, you if you wanted to do another year to consolidate your medicine in a hospital, you had to take a year's leave without pay. So I took a year's leave without pay from the military but worked in a repatriation hospital, actually, and then came in full-time. So it was four years after I joined that I actually came in working full-time in the military. And then what was it like, though, balancing that medical training with your military training? So when I was actually under training as an undergraduate and then in my hospital time, I didn't really have a lot to do uh, with the Air Force. They paid me money every fortnight. Um, I had uniforms and I also did a couple of trips um, to visit some bases um, at Laverton or at Point Cook actually and Laverton and also Richmond. You know, in my school holidays or uni uni holidays, I had a week where I um, got on board a Hercules aircraft and flew over to those locations and got a bit of a feeling for what it might be like. But it's interesting. I also went out to Edinburgh, uh, RAF Base Edinburgh, a couple of times and I remember there the doctor who was a senior medical officer who actually still, or up until very recently, um, and maybe even still works as a contractor on one of our bases. And uh, the recruiting people said, oh, go out and meet this doctor and they'll tell you how good it is to be in the Air Force. And he said, don't join. You know, you shouldn't do it. I'm, I'm really disgruntled. I'm getting out next week. Um, you shouldn't join. And I've talked to him about that in the years since and uh, he can't remember that, but I clearly remembered. But, of course, I ignored his advice like I ignore a lot of people's advice and joined up anyway and, uh, yeah. But he, as I said, he is still around as well, so he can't have hated it that much. It's a long week. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so in 1992 you took a posting with Britain's Royal Air Force. Can you tell us about that experience? Yes, no, I was very lucky. I'd only been in three years, you know, on full-time on bases and we all knew that there was a uh, an opportunity with the RAF to go over and study aviation medicine for six months and then to stay on in the UK for about a year and consolidate your knowledge by being an instructor at their Institute of Aviation Medicine. I put in an expression of interest and um, was just lucky because normally they sent over People have been more experienced, squadron leaders, but I was just a flight lieutenant at the time and uh, I got, got picked for it. Off I went, spent six months at uh, then RAF base Farnborough, just out of London. It was actually a an RAF course. It was international, had students from all over the world. And I do remember actually when I first got there, um, they must have picked I had a good sense of humour or they just assumed it because I was Australian because... Uh, the person running the course said, uh, so I just wanted to, uh, you know, just let you know statistics from the past. There's never, ever been an Australian fail this course, Flight Lieutenant Smart, and um, there's never, ever been a woman fail this course. So the pressure's all on you, isn't it? Uh, so this was the first day and I thought, oh. But uh, later on he came over and said, I hope you didn't mind. I wanted to, you know, 
lighten up the mood, I just thought you'd be a good sport. So um, the pressure was on, but I did pass the course and had a really interesting time doing it, learning about um, aviation medicine, which I then went on to uh, specialise in. Then, So six months, did do um, the exam as, with the Royal College of Physicians for that diploma and then headed up to North Luffenham Base, which is now no longer an RAF base, up in the Midlands region in the um, county of Rutland and was an instructor there for nearly 12 months, which was which was a lot of fun as well. How did you find that sort of the differences between the Australian Air Force and the British? There were a lot of similarities, but I guess the most interesting thing was their view of what Australians were like because they'd all, um, you know, you're a bit younger than me, but back in those days uh, there was the old... Um, the Barry Humphreys and Barry, was it the Adventures of Barry McKenzie, the Ocker Australian, and everybody thought that that's what Australians were like. So they'd, you know, be saying things to me um, about, you know, calling me Sheila and uh, all these old Australian expressions and also thinking that women were kind of oppressed in Australia when, in fact, I found we were far more progressive than they were in the UK. So that caused a lot of humour, including being in the mess the officers mess one day and listening to these Navy guys talking about organising their wives to vote because their wives lived in a different location. It was a bit complicated, but it's like they had to arrange for their little wives to go along and vote. And I sort of turned around and said, oh, you let your women vote here. That's very progressive of you. Um, and they just didn't get that at all, that I was being sarcastic. So uh, it was it was quite, it was a little bit of a culture shock, I think. The other thing is, in Australia, of course, we have ranks, we have officers and, and non-officers, but the differences in UK were much, the class difference was much more um, distinctive. And I remember I wanted to have a little party for Australia Day and uh, and one of the young officers, the junior officers said, look, um, are you going to invite the troops, the non-officers to this party? I said, of course I will invite everybody. They said, well, if you invite the troops, the officers won't come invite the officers, the troops won't come. But if you have it at a neutral venue, which I did at the unit, they'll all come because it's just after work. So that was a bit of a shock to the system that that was a real hierarchy. But, you know, it was it was a lot of fun and I, I met some people there that I'm still in contact with today. Um, so, yeah, it's very good. Ten years after joining the military in 1995, you deployed to the United Nations Assistance Mission in Rwanda after the start of the genocide. Can you tell us what the mandate was of the force? Yes, well, I, I was on the second contingent, not the first contingent. So the genocide sort of, the first contingent really were there not long after that. And they certainly had a, a very rough time. But the mission was to be peacekeepers. So bring some stability to the country after the genocide, which was carried out by the Hutu majority. After that, the Tutsi minority had come back into Rwanda. They'd been in exile, long story, but they'd been in exile in Uganda. They came back in, took advantage of the unrest and then took back over the country. So they had set up a government. They sort of stabilised to some extent. Um, so we came in to support them in setting up their government and there were peacekeepers all around the country to try and settle things down, be a presence, but also, of course, there were a lot of criminals being found who had to participate in the genocide and who um, were being sort of arrested and getting ready to go to an international court. That was the overall, I guess, mission from 
Australia's point of view, we were asked by the UN to provide the medical support, so a hospital, three companies, a medical company, a logistics company to support us and an infantry or rifle company to protect us. But the main focus for us was treating the UN soldiers. I think our official mandate was to treat UN soldiers and to provide some humanitarian assistance with our spare capacity. But we ended up probably 90% of what we did was for um, Rwandans because the infrastructure had been destroyed along with them, you know, killing hundreds of thousands of people. When they did the killing, they killed a lot of doctors and nurses or they all fled to another country. So the Kigali General Hospital obviously probably wasn't at the same standard of medicine before the genocide and after the genocide was even worse. So we really had the only, the big show in town in terms of providing surgical ICU capability and everything else. So it was a very busy um, deployment and um, in terms of medical support and, and it was probably, I guess, the richest experience of my life in terms of the injuries we saw and, you know, the variety of things that came through the door. What was your role there? I was a senior Air Force person over there. Uh, it was mainly an army um, deployment, but we had about 21 Air Force people and about five Navy people as well. So I was a squadron leader, and, and the um, which is the same rank as a major, and uh, I was in charge, therefore, of my Air Force people. But they were pretty much scattered through various different departments in the hospital. So my, my other role was to be in charge of aeromedical evacuation coordination and also to do the general day-to-day running of the hospital, of the wards and everything else, sort of manage that aspect as well. What was your day-to-day life like there? Um, It was interesting. So we had a a ward, used to be the kind of private hospital wing of the hospital. We actually lived just up the road in what was a former military academy. It had been pretty badly damaged in in all the activity going on. So some rooms didn't have proper doors and um, we didn't have any running water or anything. So we had to lug up buckets of water to flush the toilets and had, and everything else. We, we ended up having, they put up a big water bladder up there you could dip your buckets into, but the first, uh, first few days it was lug a bucket of water up and no shower facilities. We had showers, I think, three times a week. They set up this big tent with some nozzles all hanging from the roof. And so, you know, the girls' time was 20 minutes because there weren't as many girls. The guy's time was 40 minutes and you just went all went in there at once and all shared together, like males and then females, which was a little, little uh, different. Um, so, so you know, it was a little tough living, but we, we did have a roof over our heads and, and everything, so it wasn't too, you know, it wasn't too extreme. And then we'd have to walk down to the hospital to work in the hospital most days unless we stayed overnight. The most interesting thing was across the road from the hospital was a um, Rwandan Patriotic Army barracks. Now, these had been the guerrilla fighters who'd come back into the country after the genocide to take over the country. So they weren't the most disciplined lot of soldiers. Whenever we walked outside of either of those two compounds I mentioned, we had to have our rifle with us. And we had to have at least two people at any one time because, you know, a few people were challenged by these folks, just a bit of bravado and everything else. So there were some times when it got a little bit testy, I suppose, that kept you on your toes a little bit. The other thing that I remember distinctly, or a couple of things, first of all, some mornings I'd go out, we'd go out for a walk, two or three of us, with our rifles get a bit of exercise and one morning we came around the corner at the back of the hospital and the um, the rains had come and washed open a a big grave 
that had people hadn't been buried properly. So there were just bits of body parts, you know, skeletons lying in the street, which was a little unusual um, and smell wasn't so great. Then they came over and they properly dug these mass graves and everything else. That was one experience. The other experience was uh, in terms of confronting was, in fact, it was several experiences. We used to go over to the civilian side of the hospital. We'd take patients back from that side to our side if we thought we could save them, put some effort into and that they could make a full recovery. So we kind of triaged. And sometimes we'd go over there and um, there'd be someone dying right in front of us and it was almost like they couldn't cope with it. So instead of trying to resuscitate them, they'd be sewing up a wound on their on their leg or something. So they'd do what they could do, but they didn't actually focus on resuscitating the patient because it was beyond their capabilities to do so. So that was also very confronting at times. Dealing with that, we certainly dealt with a lot more death than you would have you would have obviously that you would have working on a on a base back here in Australia. So that was that was obviously very confronting. Um, there's one other story if I can tell you about Rwanda that I think is, uh, I think it's it's um, it kind of sums up some of the challenges. Um, we uh, adopted an orphanage over there and it was run by Mother Teresa's Order of Nuns, uh, Sisters of Charity, and they were amazing ladies. You know, they always, the right thing to say and they always, um, you know, you'd say to the things like, well, how do you survive? You know, you've, genocide's happened all around you and you stayed here to look after the children, how do you survive? How do you get food? And and they'd say, oh, it's divine providence. If we need something, God provides. And they'd say, for instance, we needed healthcare for our children and you came, your divine providence. And you think, wow, that's amazing. And another time we were at the orphanage Easter and there was, the kids were, we were giving them, you know, sugar drinks and everything so they're going crazy and they were running around and um, so much noise and I said to the sister gosh how can you stand this noise and she said to us this isn't noise it's music it's music to our ears to hear the children smiling and laughing go wow that's so cool so we had a patient of theirs come in one at one stage and she was about two three years old but she looked a lot younger she a lot of malnutrition of course after you know in that in that country at that time, we think she had measles and she just was not getting better. In the end, we decided, look, there's not much else we could do for her. We've, her brain was, you know, affected, and we would have to let her die. So I made the decision, you know, let's not resuscitate. Let's give her a dignified death. You know, we, we can't help her. Um, so we did that. I said, you know, not for resuscitation, but when she actually died. The medics called a resuscitation anyway because they just couldn't deal with the fact that this little girl had died. So we had to go in there and counsel them and a lot of the nurses were upset and we, we worked through all of this and, in fact, my mother had just sent over these lovely kids' clothes. So I said, look, go and find a nice little dress and let's, you know, a lot of people in Rwanda were buried in mass graves and no one knew where their body was. We know who this girl is. Let's give her a dignified, etc. And so I was working through all this trying to, support my team and then I saw um, coming up the corridor the nuns coming to see the little girl and I'm thinking oh good they can give me the right words to say. I saw the nun and they said oh how's how's Saverina? I'm sorry sister Um, we weren't able to save her so she just passed you know a little while ago 
and the nun burst into tears. So I then had to counsel the nun. And I was thinking, my God, it's not my day. <laughs> it's not my day. Where's my divine providence? Because, you know, here I am thinking I'm going to get looked after. But instead, the nun was more upset than, than anybody. It was a funny moment in some ways. But it also showed how deeply these, these women cared for the children. And it was one of those moments where, um, you know, it was really, I guess, the humanity of the whole thing came through. So, but uh, it, it was quite amusing. Who's, who's there to counsel me? Oh, I'll just better keep on going and do my job. Was it easy to open up about what you'd witnessed there? We had psychologists come over, particularly after the, the massacre at the Cabejo camp that occurred while, while I, my contingent was there. I wasn't there at Cabejo during that massacre. A good friend of mine was, but I went down there about two weeks later. So I was actually at the camp and witnessed sort of what had happened and everything else. But after that massacre, because it affected our people so deeply, and I want to say too, as I've said many times before, our people who were there when the massacre occurred. It was some of the most courageous acts you've ever seen from ADF personnel, mostly soldiers who were down there. They witnessed this massacre. Their mandate was not to get involved. If they'd started shooting back when these killings were going on and about, you know, several thousand people were killed in front of them, they would have all died. But they kept their discipline. They saved who they could. But a lot of them suffered effects, including PTSD, after that event. They brought in psychologists and we all had some debriefings and everything. But when things happen in that context, you deal with them and you move on and have to keep going. But when you come home and you start reflecting on things, you realise, oh, that wasn't a normal experience. So I think everybody who comes home from something like that goes through it differently, but it does have an effect. And I remember, for instance, they had all those World Vision ads on of starving children in Africa. And I just... I didn't want to see any more starving children in Africa. I'd had enough of that. But what really helped me was talking about it. The first time I talked about it was I got back to work after a couple of weeks off back at uh, Williamtown, RAF Williamtown, which is our fighter base. And I knew the CO of um, one of the squadron, flying squadrons very well. And he'd said, rang me up when I got back and said, look, Tracy, welcome back. I know it's tough deployment. Uh, we're going to go over to Malaysia, deploying our jets over to Malaysia in, a, in a two or three weeks' time would you come over as our doctor in support? And I went, yeah. And he said, and bring your slides. Bring it, because I had slides in those days. Bring your photos of Rwanda. So while we were over there, he got me to brief his fighter pilots who, you know, they're the best of the best, um, or so they think. Uh, but they, he said, basically introduced it and said, now we're going to hear from the doc. You think you're the sharp end of the defence force? Well, she's just come back from the sharp end and she's going to tell you about her experiences. And so I did and it was very raw and, of course, being a doctor, it was very graphic. A couple of them actually walked out. They couldn't stand to see the photos that I had and it was probably, probably in retrospect, I wouldn't have shown them but it was just the mind space I was in. Having them and some of them to this day remember that presentation and how what an impact they had on them. And that helped me to see that other people went, wow, you got through that? if that makes sense. And then I ended up doing a, every year for the new doctors and nurses and, and other officers coming into the Air Force, I did a presentation on Rwanda. The first year that I did it, I was absolutely drained. I just could not. I was exhausted. But every year it got easier. I think I've learned from that a couple of things. First of all, as if you've got an infected wound, the thing you need to do with bad stuff is let the pus out. And you let the pus out by talking about it. So that's really important. The other thing I think that I sort of now reflecting back 
is going through those bad experiences and processing it like that. I think that a lot of people talk about resilience and so getting through bad stuff and bouncing back. To me, I think I actually grew from that experience. So I experienced post-traumatic growth. So from that bad stuff and processing that, it's probably given me the skill set to be able to go into this job that I've got now, which is Surgeon General of the Australian Defence Force. So I I firmly believe that unfortunately while a lot of my colleagues got post-traumatic stress disorder, by being able to talk about it, was actually able to process it and grow from the experience. In 2000, you found yourself with an overseas posting with the United States Air Force. What was that like? A lot of fun. I was posted to Virginia. It was the um, Air Combat Command headquarters and in the flight surgeon's shop, which is the aerospace medicine, their language flight surgeon's shop. It was a good couple of years because I got to see a lot of the states. I got to visit a lot of different um, bases around the US and also do a lot of travelling. My job was looking at human performance and uh, flight safety. I was involved in a lot of accident investigations from a health point of view. From the human performance side of things, that was quite a few bits and pieces. But one of the most interesting ones is that um, at that stage, women haven't been flying fast jets, so fighter pilots, etc., for very long. And nobody had solved the problem of how you pee when you're a woman in a fighter, in a, you know, because men have various bags and condom catheters they can actually put on. I won't go into more detail. I think you know what I mean. But for women, it's not that easy. So one of the thing projects I was involved in is female bladder relief device. Um, we went uh, out to industry and um, from that process, you know, over the years, they've actually got a solution to the problem. So that was interesting and I've been able to give a lot of interesting talks about that since then and a lot of puns on on that whole thing. But that was just one example of the bits and pieces I did. Then towards the end of my time, well, I was there 2000, 2001, so, of course, it's September 11th, 2001, everything changed for the US military. And I was uh, on base at the time and we I was actually sitting in the office, heard some footsteps up the hall and it was the readiness cell. And they had televisions there because they were, they were on standby if we needed to deploy anything around the world. So they said, oh, planes crashed into the World Trade Towers. And we're going, oh, that sounds a bit flight medicine-y. We better go down and have a look. And as we were standing there, the second plane crashed into the other tower and it was like, what, what, you know, what's going on? And that moment of us all going, what's happening, was just one of those moments you never forget. I still get shivers up my spine when I think about it. And as that day progressed, you know, we had jets on the base, F-15s, that, that took off to intercept some of the other aircraft. We heard rumours that other uh, airlines were coming in from other countries with targets all over America. It was it was just we didn't know what was happening. The whole base was locked down. After a couple of hours or hour or so, we thought, oh, gosh, we've got no food. What are we going to do? We're locked on, on their thing. So we went down to the little sweet shop or whatever in the basement and it was absolutely wiped out of food. Everybody had got there before us. Even the hostess Twinkies went and they're the last things to go in an emergency. And so that was a very surreal day. And then from that moment on, as I was there to see the whole US war machinery really crank up because, of course, there hadn't been a lot of action for quite some time. Um, so they really all geared up for war. So it was really interesting to be there and, and obviously play a part in some of that as uh, as they, you know, started down that path that you know, we've been on really ever since in one way or another. Um, so that was an interesting experience. How differently did the US Air Force operate compared to what you're used to with the Australian Air Force? 
again, there are a lot of um, similarities because we we fly some of the same aircraft and um, in similar ways. So, but again, really big organisation and um, just the size and the scale of it was quite amazing. Air Combat Command had all the fight, pretty much all the fighter jets um, within the continental US and then deployed overseas and everything else. And that was like much, much bigger than our Air Force. That one command was much bigger than our Air Force. That was really fascinating. They really were very welcoming and um, I was really felt like part of the team. So even when, um, you know, we were in those days after 9-11 when there were a lot more US-only briefings, they'd go to the US-only briefings and come back and tell me everything that had been said because they just saw, well, you're just part of the team. And it was, that was great. It was You weren't treated any differently. We did have on up in the office, we had a translation board from Australian in, into US. So things like spit the dummy equals have a cow, you know. So we, we tried to do those slang sort of, uh, so there was that sort of fun banter and stuff. But no, generally I was uh, treated very much like part of the team. How was the morale at that time? Oh, it was, it was a, again, a very strange period of time. After 9-11, that whole um, working through the shock and, and, and then a lot of anger and a lot of, well, they were searching around for an enemy, I guess, it was very hard to define who the enemy was. And, you know, some people would say, we're at war with Afghanistan. I'm going, no, I actually don't think you are at war. You might be going to Afghanistan. but And so it was very, um, it was almost like they were so deeply wounded and by that attack in the heartland of America. It was just like, let us fight someone. We've got to fight someone to get back. We've got to have revenge for this. So that was that was quite interesting to see how quickly. And, and there were a couple of times where I challenged some of the thought processes that were going on and I had good friends sort of got very angry with me, um, you know, sort of looking at a different perspective. So, yeah, it was an interesting time. In 2002, you spent some time in Timor. In Timor, I was the chief health officer. I was the senior Australian medical officer. And I was also the chief health officer for the whole United Nations peacekeeping mission. Uh, so that was another interesting job. Quite a few nations were involved, gathered all around the country. I was really there to coordinate their efforts and kind of have a joined up health system. Australia had the hospital there when I first got there um, in Timor. Uh, so I was keeping an oversight of that and also then liaising with the Thais and the Koreans and the Japanese to ensure that we were all, all had an understanding of what, what everybody's capability was, even though each were looking after their own particular contingents. I was also liaising with the Ministry of Health in Timor, which was um, kind of just getting on its feet. They had very few doctors in Timor after the Indonesians left. So they were just building capability. So we were able to work with them. And probably one of the biggest um, things that I got involved in is when they had the official independence ceremony from Indonesia. They had a big event, big concert and, you know, party. And we had all these VIPs coming, into, including um, Bill Clinton and Kofi Annan and, and uh, you know, the head of various countries came over and therefore we had to design an emergency system in one in case there were problems in the crowd but also vip so that was interesting setting up the organization for that it included actually the timorese um, red cross which was again very fledgling organization but we got them involved doing some of the crowd support and and everything else so it was really good sort of working with all the different nations but also capacity building within timor so yeah enjoyed that I was there for uh, seven and a half months in total. Have you got any standout moments that come to mind when you think of your time there? 
I had a very cheeky Portuguese general that was over there. And unfortunately, he passed away uh, shortly after I left the country. But Bill Clinton being there, he um, offered me $100 to offer Bill Clinton a cigar as he walked by because of the whole Monica Lewinsky thing. And um, I uh, decided I'm in uniform, I'm representing Australia. No, sorry, keep your $100. And, uh, but, you know, Bill Clinton was just walking by. I could have very easily done it, but uh, I resisted that temptation. So there was a lot of fun times in Timor. But I think for me it was getting out and about around the country, meeting the Timorese people and looking at what they were trying to achieve. When they became independent, they were automatically, I think, one of the poorest countries in the world. So they had all the infrastructure had been provided by Indonesia they voted for independence and then it's like, wow, they're really coming from trying to build up from that very low base. And uh, so it was really good to participate in that and uh, and be around when they were setting up. Again, I, I like to joke that I was one of the midwives at the birth of a nation. And that was kind of exciting from that point of view. Moving on from there, when did you find yourself deployed to the Middle East area of operations? End of 2003, beginning of 2004. It wasn't during the first push, obviously, but it was uh, pretty early days. So I was I was based in uh, Al Udeed in Qatar, but I was again the senior health officer for the whole Middle East area. So most of my job was actually embedded with the US in what they call their Joint Patient Movements Requirement Centre. So it was really to be, and they call it a validating flight surgeon. So basically it's a, an aviation medicine doctor who talks to people on the ground in Afghanistan and Iraq and all over the Middle East to determine how we're going to move patients, aeromedical evacuation-wise, what equipment's needed. Yes, we should move them now. It's that sort of decision-making. So that cell was in the what's called the CAOC, the Combined Air Operations Centre. So that's where they're running the war from, and well, at least the air war. Um, so that was quite fascinating being part of that and being, um, again, embedded with the US and once again being treated like another member of the US um, Air Force, which or in fact Defence Force because it, it was a tri-service cell that I was in. Uh, but then I, in the role of that senior Australian health officer, I also went into Baghdad and um, sort of liaised with our other health assets around Iraq and uh, in other locations around the Middle East. That was good as well. Getting out and about, going to Baghdad was quite interesting. Second time I went in there, um, we were on a US Air Force Hercules that was actually happened to be an aeromedical evacuation. So it was full of patients. And myself and a colleague got onto the aircraft and they said, I'm sorry, we've broken down. So we're in the middle of the airfield at Baghdad Airport with all these stretcher-bound patients thinking, well, we're a bit of a sitting target, aren't we? But it was relatively safe when I was there and eventually they were able to fly back out of there. But it was, uh, it was interesting being there and uh, it was pretty, still pretty strict security in terms of moving around and everything at the time. In 2006, you were also deployed to Beirut, what can you tell us about that? Yes, I accidentally, in some ways, deployed to Beirut. In 2004, later in 2004, I became the officer commanding of health, the health services wing for Air Force. That wing is basically, or that role is being the senior Air Force operational health commander. So all the people we deployed away in Air Force Health all belong to me. So that was really interesting. It's kind of a natural progression from being, you know, a junior doctor, then the senior doctor on an operation and then running the whole show, if you like, from an Air Force perspective. There was such a busy period. We had humanitarian operations everywhere as well as supporting the Middle East, etc. And that particular year I had a thing called a medical assessment element, which was 
a doctor and an environmental health officer who, if there was a disaster or something we could deploy into as part of a broader defence team into an embassy to provide health intel on the ground to, you know, work out what health support was required. So I had used up all my doctors either doing that duty or some other mission during the year. So to give them a break, I said, I'll go on the, and to, you know, to be a leader, hands-on leader, I'll go on the roster for a month just to get, let everybody have a bit of time. And lo and behold, while I was on the roster, Beirut. So that was when the Israelis had Lebanon under siege, basically, because Hezbollah were uh, undertaking some activities there. So it was um, kind of accidental. I know a few people said, why is a group captain, as I was at the time, a colonel equivalent, going and doing this role that a flight lieutenant should? But I actually had support from a hierarchy to say, well, no, if you're on the roster, I, I, if I pulled out, it wouldn't look, look good from that point of view. So I went over there and um, we spent about a month in um, Beirut and the main role we ended up doing was uh, we were evacuating Australians by mainly by ferry, either to Turkey or to Cyprus. So we had health teams in Turkey and health teams in Cyprus to process them. But on the ground in Beirut, there was just myself, initially just myself and my environmental health officer. And then we got a nursing officer to come in as well. And we had, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people. It sounds, well, why is that so hard? They would be fit and healthy, but it was elderly, it was kids. Uh, there was a, there were a few people who had chronic illnesses. We had to make sure that they were fit to get on the boat in the first place, but also look at things like, you know, seasickness pills and all this sort of stuff. So that was one of those. We went in to just be kind of the planners and gather intel and all that sort of stuff. We ended up actually screening all of these hundreds and hundreds of people over a several-day period to help them evacuate from the country. It was interesting to meet some of these people. It was almost like some of them had two personas because they were Australians born in Lebanon but had moved to Australia and some were back on holidays. One guy we met said he, he didn't speak English but he had an Australian passport and he'd moved, gone back to Lebanon to die. But as he said, he said, yes, I went back to Lebanon to die but I didn't die. And now they're trying to kill me. So now I'm going back to Australia to die. I want to die in Australia, said this through a translator. So that was quite interesting. And there was also the behaviours too. Culturally, in the Middle East, is different to Australia. So a couple of times people were being really pushy and everything else. And I think it was my colleague said, come on, guys, we're all Australians here. And all of a sudden they reverted to being Australians and lining up in an orderly manner. So it was quite interesting to see the cultural shift in front of us. That was quite rewarding. We uh, we had a lot of people. Um, I think we helped there. And um, once we'd done the job, we headed back out. But um, it was an interesting, said just four weeks or so, but interesting. Another interesting job. Walk us through your various roles from after Beirut until your last promotion in 2015. Beirut, as I said, was just a short period of time and I then remained Officer Commanding Health Services Wing until the end of 2007. Then I was posted out and I was posted to um, uh, the Centre for Defence and Strategic Studies at Western Creek. Australian Defence College. They call it Junior Generals course. So it's the course they put you on before you're promoted to the general ranks. Um, so that was a year of study, doing a Master of Arts in Strategic Studies, which a lot of doctors wouldn't necessarily have. I, I have to say the education I've received in the ADF has been fantastic. I did my Master of Public Health and then a Master of Arts in Strategic Studies and, and a lot of other professional development along the way. Also got my Fellow of the College of Aerospace Medicine, Fellow of the Royal Australian College of uh, Medical Administrators, all of this from while I'm in Defence Force so that I've got civilian qualifications as well as uh, military qualifications, which is good. 
but yeah, I did that Master of Arts, 12 months, and then um, I was promoted to Air Commodore, which is the equivalent rank to a brigadier. Um, and I, was, I came here to beautiful Campbell Park. And um, my first role was um, really a corporate health management type role. This organisation that I now run, Joint Health Command, um, this was only just standing up at the time. In the second half of 2008, I was posted in at 2009. And it was the first time we really had a, instead of having just Navy, Army, Air Force, health services, this is a joint health services, brings it all together. So as we've evolved over the years, we now run all the healthcare on bases for the whole Defence Force around Australia. And that's, I've been here over that, most of that nearly 10 year journey as we've evolved into this joint organisation. But I had a series of jobs. I had that job. Then I was Director General Garrison Health Operations. So I was responsible directly for running that healthcare. And then a more a strategic role after that. And then I got promoted at the end of 2015 to Air Vice Marshal and got the dual roles of Commander Joint Health but also Surgeon General of the ADF. So there's slightly different roles. The Commander Joint Health means I command Joint Health Command, so I run all the aspects of Joint Health Command. So the single services, Navy, Army and Air Force, they run the operational health, as I did in Air Force back in my previous job, but I have oversight of that whole system and things like policy and um, equipment, all of that sort of stuff, we manage that as a joint entity and then hand it off to the single services to then deploy, et cetera. So I like to say two jobs but only one paycheck. The modern ADF is really standing out as a pro-woman and equal opportunities organisation. How have you seen the change in culture in the Air Force over the years? I think my experiences are different to some other women for many reasons. First of all, I came in as a doctor and that already had a certain level of status, I suppose. Also working in the health world, there are a lot of females working in the health world. Generally speaking, I've felt pretty respected and um, and haven't really had any issues. But I, I think as some of our women have in, particularly in roles that aren't traditionally female, I think that's been difficult for some, I know that's been difficult for some women. I guess I'm also, I mean, I grew up on a farm with two brothers and, and two male cousins and I'd always been one of the boys. And I think that helped me a little bit, just been hanging around with guys a long time and maybe I was more tolerant than some people, I don't know. But it definitely has changed. Um, and look, it's changed for the better. There's, Defence gets a bit of criticism sometimes that we're being too diverse and too uh, PC, but I do think there is in strength in having diversity, whatever that might be, you know, as in if, if it's gender diversity, if it's um, sexuality, if it's uh, you know background, ethnic background, religion and all that sort of stuff. I think there's a lot of evidence that says if you've got a diverse bring in different ideas in it actually strengthens the culture more than anything else and i've certainly seen think that that we've changed for the better over the years i'm in a same-sex relationship and i was at the pride ball a few weeks ago somebody said well when you're talking tell your own stories and so i did and and reflecting back i think i've actually been treated well in that respect as well but when I told some of the you know things that happened back a few years ago, some of the young people of today who maybe sometimes feel that you know things aren't progressing as much as they like, they went, "Oh my God, we've come a long way." And I said, "Yeah, we have." And I even myself don't sort of realise that. So we've been on a journey. The def defence force will never be cutting edge in social change, but I do think we've been able to adapt as time goes by, and I think we've got a better defence force as a result of that.
Looking back at that choice you made when you signed up of picking the Air Force over the Navy, knowing what you know now, would you have made the same choice? Uh, yes, I would. And in fact, there is a uh, story I haven't told. Um, you'd be surprised to know. I guess a tragic story, but um, a funny moment came out of it. I think that's how I see life. I was actually over in, uh, attended an aircraft accident, an F-111 aircraft accident in 1999. One of our aircraft uh, crashed into an island off the coast of Malaysia and killed both people on board. And that was a very, that was probably the most traumatic experience that I went through, I've been through in defence. But we were based on a Navy ship um, at that time. We were being helicoptered across to the island to, you know, recover the remains, etc. And uh, so I'd been there all day in the mud of swampy mud and tending to the accident victims. And I got back on the ship and all I wanted was a nice long shower. So I went into the showers and after 60 seconds, bang, 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 you've had your time in the shower. <laughs> you've got to leave now because, of course, on board a ship, you've got a limited amount of water and the rule is I think 60 or 90 second showers and here I was you know lathered up and <laughs> so I thought yeah I made a good choice. <laughs> Air Force when, when we deploy we usually avoid to, to a place where there's usually showers there and in fact some people say the joke is that uh, Navy navigate by the stars, Army sleep under the stars, Air Force never goes anywhere unless it's five stars. So I think in retrospect, um, I, no, I've, seriously speaking, though, I've really enjoyed being part of the Air Force. Um, I think we have got a very strong culture. I really have enjoyed aviation medicine and aeromedical evacuation. And although some of that is practices in the other services, I think for me, the home of that really is the Air Force. And I've enjoyed, um, certainly enjoyed my career. So far, you have achieved a lot. But what's next? I'm not really sure at the moment. Um, I'm in this job at least until the end of next year. Um, not sure whether I'll be extended or not. But it took me 30 years to get to this job. And when I got into it, I thought, okay, all my experience now of my whole career has now culminated in this job. This is the most most senior job for a, for a doctor, for a health provider. Um, and I look back and I think about that time on a Navy ship for a few days, and I've been on ships as well a couple of other times, I think about deploying to um, Rwanda with the Army and I think about my Air Force experience, that I've experienced a little bit of each of the services. So for me coming into this role, it felt right that I have enough knowledge of the whole system from the grassroots right up to the top to be able to manage that whole system. And if I don't focus completely on this job now and not only doing the stuff now but, look, having a pathway to the future then I've done all the rest of my career disservice. So I'm very much focused on the on this job and why, where the health services will go in the future. And then I'll look at options, uh, you know, when I, when I finish uh, up, whenever that may be. I am very interested and I spend a lot of time these days working with the Department of Veterans Affairs. I've been talking to my folks even just yesterday about the fact that, uh, you know, we look after ADF members only in defence, but we're also looking after future veterans and there's more that we can do, I think, to help prepare people to go in the next, next step. So that might be an area that I might be interested in going to as well to look at how can we improve health outcomes for veterans. Um, it seems a logical step, but, but we'll see. Uh, as I said, I, I want to focus on getting this job right in the meantime. Well, Tracy, you've had one incredible career and we can't wait to hear what's next. And thank you for sharing your story with us. Thank you, it's a pleasure.
Thomas Kay had this chat with Tracy in October 2017. Our thanks go to Defence Media for organising the interview. If you like the conversation, make sure you subscribe to the podcast to get more episodes like this. You can also email us feedback at podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com or even leave us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. You can also reach out to us online. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com and we're on Twitter at LOTLpod. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening. And lest we forget... <laughs>